Last Sunday, we began our examination of this third and final section of the book by diving into this amazing fourth chapter. After finishing up his dictation of seven letters to seven churches located in Asia, our author, John, the Apostle John, tells us, the chapter opens, that after these things, he immediately found himself being raptured in the Spirit into the throne room of heaven. Not only does John then describe the countenance of him who sat on the throne, God the Father, but he goes the extra mile by portraying for us this incredible scene surrounding the throne itself. John documents this green-hued rainbow encircling the throne. And the floor looked as if it were a sea of glass, as brilliant and fine and translucent as crystal. Additionally, the Apostle John can't escape the sights and sounds of these incredible bursts of lightnings and thunderings and voices coming from the throne as well. How the Holy Spirit was manifesting His presence before the throne as these seven lamps of fire. Aside from these things, John details these additional 24 thrones that were all placed around and in equal distance to God's throne, and he notes the elders who occupied them. These 24 unnamed saints, these individuals, we're told were clothed in white and had these crowns of gold. Lastly, John does his best <laughs> to describe these four trippy, crazy-looking angels, these cherubim who he says were in the midst of the throne and were continually declaring the holiness of God. They would say, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come, holy, holy, holy. John says that these flying creatures had six wings. They had eyes all around and within, and each one possessed the likeness of a lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. Again, a very trippy scene. As you attempt to process all that John is describing, concerning the throne room. It's very important that you always remember that John has been taken into the future. He's been taken into this heavenly scene for a very particular reason. Now note, providing for us a description of heaven, or for that matter detailing what our eternal existence will be like, is not John's mandate. That's not his purpose in writing. Instead, Jesus called John through this open door into the throne room of heaven so that he could really witness and therefore record what's about to happen in chapter 5. Because of this, you need to always remember when you're reading through the book of Revelation and John's description is that what he says of heaven is limited mainly to the throne room itself. And therefore, his revelation will exclude Many of the other details that the Bible provides about heaven, what heaven will be like, and more importantly, what our experiences in heaven will entail. As we'll see why John will hear, in the latter half of chapter 5, an innumerable multitude of the heavenly host praising God. He hears them, but he doesn't see them. You see, the only human presence that John specifically witnesses in the throne room are these 24 elders. Now, while I'm confident that every citizen of heaven will have a cognitive awareness of everything that's happening in the inner sanctum, unless you happen to be lucky 
and land one of the jobs of these 24 elders. Your experience in heaven will be much different than theirs, or what John describes. Following last Sunday's study, I had enough of you ask me questions about heaven. Questions, honestly, that our text doesn't address, that I want to take just a few minutes at the beginning, kind of pull away from our exposition, and I want to attempt to just round out your perspective of what heaven will be like from a a biblical perspective. Now, John doesn't mention for us any additional physical structures, does he, in the heavenlies? And yet we're told by Jesus in John chapter 14, he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is clear, though John doesn't mention these, these things, that heaven will be filled with literal homes, that the citizens of the kingdom of God will occupy and enjoy. I hope mine has counter uh, granite countertops. And if you really think about it, right, the innumerable, incredible number of mansions that would be needed, right, to house every saint who's ever lived, you can understand really two things. One, heaven will be vast, right? And while it took Jesus just six days to create the universe, I mean, he's still going on like 2,000 years of construction, preparing a place for you and I. Building upon this idea, there are also numerous places in the scriptures where beyond being called a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, it's referred to as well as the city of the living God. You'll find that the city of the living God mentioned all throughout the Bible. Again, John is only describing for us what? The king's throne room. But you should note that there is a city beyond John's view, literal literal enough, to necessitate foundation stones, we're told that are made up of precious gems, massive outer gates constructed with pearls, as well as interior streets paved with gold. Aside from these physical dwellings and the infrastructure necessary for city life, the Bible also describes the existence of the natural world, existing in heaven, similar to what we have on earth. Though man began his experience in a garden, the Garden of Eden, the Bible tells us he will end in a city, a glorious city, a new Jerusalem. But you know, we also have mention of rivers of water in heaven, along with vegetation, trees, vineyards, and most notably, the tree of life. In addition to John failing to mention any of these things, as well in Revelation 4 and 5, According to Isaiah 11 and 65, we also know there will be elements not just of the natural world in heaven, but also the animal kingdom. I don't know about your pet, but I can say with certainty that my dog will be in heaven. Though John has affirmed the existence of human beings in heaven by referencing these 24 elders, who I think are representative of the church itself, he doesn't provide any additional insights into what our eternal glorified state will be. He mentions elders, but he doesn't tell us what they're like. So as it relates to this topic, I just want to point out 
that the best place to turn for insights into what our bodies will be like in heaven and glory, you should look at Jesus. Jesus is described for us as being the firstborn of the resurrection of the dead, meaning that he's kind of our example, our blueprint, our template for what glory will be. As such, we can surmise that in heaven, you and I will dwell in a physical human body. Please know that. You will have a body in heaven with arms and legs and nose and ears and mouths and hair. The only difference is that it won't be corrupted by sin. You know, contrary to many modern depictions, in your heavenly state, you will not be a spirit being. The Bible doesn't say that. Nor will you be a ghost or an angel. Not at all. Instead, you will be in heaven physically human enough to be touched, recognized, spoken to, sing, as well as possess emotional capacities to worship, to laugh, to cry. Furthermore, in heaven you will have a mind, intelligence, and likely an individualized skill set necessary to fulfill your heavenly job. Yes, you will have a job in heaven. Also, your memories and your earthly relationships will carry into eternity as well. Jesus knew the apostles. Because the Bible directly links your future body with your present one, explaining that the transformation occurs through an actual, and I would say literal, resurrection. Again, keep in mind, Jesus was resurrected, right? Firstborn of the resurrection of the dead, the blueprint for what our experience will be. Jesus experienced what? A physical resurrection. There was no body. His physical frame took on glory. There was a transformation, meaning that what makes you you? Your personality, your character traits will likely remain the same. Again, just no longer tainted by a sin nature. Like in heaven, you will be the version of you that God always intended you to be. By the way, you will be the version of you that Christ is presently making you into. Again, the Bible describes heaven as, as the fulfillment of our salvation. Within Scripture, you'll find that, that you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. We have been saved from sin. We are being saved in the sense that like this programming, this residual effects of sin and, and the habits we've developed, Christ is working out of us. We were saved, we are being saved, but we will be saved. Christ's work in you is not complete. It's not finished. In heaven it will be. The you that you are in heaven is the you God always wanted you to be. Beyond these things, again with Jesus as being our example of what our glorified bodies will be capable of, these are the things that you will have the ability to do. And I find them to be exciting. Again, looking at Jesus. In glory, you will be human, just like you are, just in glory. But you will also be able to teleport, which is cool. You know, Jesus was on the road to Damascus, uh, the road to Emmaus, sat down, was eating, boom, teleported to another location. That's great. I don't like to walk. So I can get to point A to point B much quicker. Just... You know, the I dream of genie. There we go. So you'll be able to, to teleport. That's cool. You'll also be able to fly. Again, Jesus ascended to heaven, right? Lift off. That'd be cool. Uh, additionally, you can walk through walls. We see Jesus doing that. 
which is incredible. I mean, there's a lot of space within a wall if you get to the atomic level, which means, like, you could walk through a wall now. Someone would just have to throw you through it. But you'll be able to walk through a wall. I think that's cool. Um, you'll also be able to eat and drink. And most importantly, you'll never die, which is cool. Logically, because we won't need food or drink to survive or to like sustain our lives, Christ does that, we will be able to eat and drink in heaven purely for our enjoyment and our satisfaction, which means you can eat without ever worrying about packing on the pounds or having to hit the gym or you won't have to worry about your high blood pressure or your diabetes. Larry can have as much dessert in heaven as he can possibly eat. I, I actually just, it's a, it's, a, it's a theory I have. It's not biblical, but I think we'll all be fat in heaven so that no one will have body issues at all. I mean, if everyone's fat, we're good. In Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, John actually will tell us that our first experience in heaven, the church, after the rapture, will be a grand banquet that's actually called the marriage supper of the Lamb. The first thing we get to do when we get to heaven is eat. I think Jesus was a foodie. I mean, of all the things in the world that he could have like left as a symbol of himself, he says, when you gather, partake of bread and wine. When you think of me, I want you to eat something. I like that. Jesus is a foodie. You know, the Bible describes a lot of different food. Uh, lots of fruit we find reference of. According to the ESV translation of Isaiah 25 or 6, heaven's menu will include things like, quote, rich food full of, of marrow, or, or like it's the tenderest of meats. And we're also told that we'll have well-aged, refined wine. I think it will be comical watching all the teetotaler Baptists have their first drink in heaven. Now my point in bringing all of this up is to dispel a few fears. Really one specific fear. That most Christians are never really willing to publicly express it because it sounds really bad and unchristian. I'm going to go ahead and express this for you. A fear that you probably ne have never articulated, but you've thought about heaven. And it's this. Zach, sitting in heaven, worshiping God for all of eternity, sounds like a complete drag. Have you ever thought that? I have. Just be real. Sitting around on a cloud for all of eternity, singing songs, sounds lame. I tell you about heaven for this purpose. You don't have to fear that. Yes, you will worship God. We will all worship God. And it'll be the type of experience you've never had before. But you will be doing a lot of other things in heaven aside from worshiping God. We won't be sitting around on clouds worshiping forever. You'll have jobs and roles and there'll be things to do, mansions to live in, fishing, the things you enjoy, baseball. Baseball will be in heaven. Again, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's biblical. 
the prodigal son hit a home run. Whatever, whatever. We'll move on. As John stands there, right, watching this heavenly scene, again, limited to the throne room of heaven, he notices in verse 4 of Revelation, uh, verse 9 of Revelation 4, that whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders fall down and worship as well. So he sees this happening. John adds that in an act of worship, these elders proceed to cast their crowns before the throne, and they say, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And that's really where we left off last Sunday. It really is amazing to me that in a scene that's filled with all kinds of incredible wonders, John keeps coming back, keeps returning to this throne. He can't get away from the throne. It just it, it enraptured his attention. Why? Because it's the focal point of all activity. It's the center of everything. And as he watches, John sees these living creatures praising God, which, again, seems to be different from their continual refrain of holy, holy, holy. So this is something that they do periodically. And it elicits an immediate reaction from the 24 elders. So in response, whenever these, these angels make this declaration, the elders fall down, they make a declaration of their own, casting their their crowns before the Lord. Now, before we go any further, I do want to take a quick second and address a criticism that more traditional-oriented Christians have of what we might call a contemporary worship service. You see, there is a school of thought within Christianity that, that turning the overhead lights low filling the stage with LEDs or lasers or smoke machines, incorporating screens that flash creative imagery, having big sound, amplified, skilly, skillfully played music, somehow cheapens our worship of God, and they'll argue that it creates this arbitrary experience for the worshiper through visual and auditory stimulation. Like they'll contend that the only way you can really know for sure that God is being exalted through your worship the only way you can know for sure that your experience is, is real and authentic is to strip away anything that might be an artificial stimulant existing in the atmosphere or the environment. Meaning, they'll argue that the only way you can truly worship God is have the lights up, no color, no screens, no music. And if you do have music, at least it can't be loud. Whatever you do, keep the smoke machine and lasers away. Quenches the moving of the Spirit. Everyone knows that. Now, I, I would agree that the purpose of worship, unquestionably, is to exalt God. And I would add that we want to make sure that our experience in worship ends up being a, a, a result of something that's authentic, genuine. Like, we want that. We should crave that. It's also true that worship leaders can be masters of manipulating the emotions of an audience. But my issue with sterilizing the environment of worship, of any and all visual and auditory stimulation, it's very simple. Have you seen heaven? Like, the worship of God, it, think about what we've seen in heaven. Like in Revelation 4, the Apostle John has just described a worship service in the throne room of God, and this is what it includes. 
incredible rays of red, green, and white lights, LEDs, and laser beams emanating from the throne. Not only that, there's a disco ball. It's just on the floor, fine as crystal, and it's emanating light everywhere. I mean, imagine the experience. Aside from this, John notes that there is loud noises, big sound. The Holy Spirit, what's he doing? He's putting on a pyrotechnics display center stage with these lamps of fire. In chapter 5, John will tell us that these 24 elders, when they go to worship and sing the song at the end, they start rocking out on electric guitars. Okay, they're harps, but that's just a loose translation. Stringed instruments. Like the truth is that God created you and I. He created humanity for sensory experiences. Just how we interact with the world. And the atmosphere of heaven and the environment in which we will worship God, He crafted and created for an experience. Like you see, in heaven, things will be so visually appealing And the sounds we hear so absolutely amazing that God will actually have to fit us into new bodies just so we can fully experience these sensory elements. The colors our eyes aren't even made for and the sounds our ears couldn't process. Within the worship of God is this incredible atmosphere and experience. You're looking at heaven, this heavenly scene is kind of our model You know, the key when when it comes to crafting the environment in which we worship now, while there is no problem with the scene being visually stimulating and the sounds that we hear being pleasing to our ears, we must always make sure that the throne of God always remains the focal point of the environment and that the motivation of our worship is to exalt no other man but He who sits on the throne. With this in mind, I want to take a few minutes and discuss the fact that the worship of these elders, these 24, and what we can assume to be the purest, truest form of of worship, right? Their worship manifests, and if you're a note taker, you can jot these down. It manifests in three distinct ways. I'm going to call them the three Ps, okay? There is a posture there is a pronouncement, and there's a reciprocation. I know that's not a P, but you'll remember it. The three P's, posture, pronouncement, reciprocation. You get me? Reciprocation. You just capitalize the P in the middle. I looked everywhere for a P, and I was like, forget it. I like the three P's, I'm going to stick with it. First, Notice, notice their posture. Look at the text. John observes that upon this prompting from the cherubim, instantly what happens? The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. I love that. In the Greek, this word used for fall down, it describes, it's not like they tripped and fell down. It describes an intentional act reflecting an internal, uh, an internal attitude. So it's an intentional act reflecting an internal attitude. You see, these elders intentionally get up from their thrones, right? 
And they purposely fall on their faces in order to physically demonstrate a reverence and a humility of their hearts before the Lord. To this point, it's simply a truth that real worship can only manifest from a heart that first recognizes its proper place in light of God's rightful position. Now, more often than not, the greatest hindrance to your worship, and why maybe sometimes you come on a Sunday morning and you feel as though your experience has just grown stale, and sometimes it just comes down to a simple fact that you're filled with pride. And in your pride, you have lost sight of who you are and who God is. It will hinder your worship. This is why as part of our worship experience at Calvary 316, we always have the Lord's table open so that you can come and you can partake of the elements. You see, sometimes before we can worship, before we can really exalt the name above all names, we need a reminder of what it was that Jesus has done for us and why his sacrifice was necessary. It's hard to come to the table in pride. You can only come in humility. Yeah, I should also add that when you worship, sometimes, this is just a practical bit of advice, sometimes it's necessary to adopt a physical posture in order to kind of codify the correct internal attitude. Like, like for me personally, when I worship, and, and you'll notice sometimes on stage, if I can, I, I like to raise my hands to the air in, in worship. I like to be singing, but I, like to, I, I want there to be a physical manifestation of an internal attitude. I raise my hands because it, it's kind of my way of expressing a need. Man, I need more of you. I need more of your spirit. Fill me. I'm here and you're there. But, you know, also for me, it's, it's an indication, it's a sign. Like, this is the universal sign of what? If someone comes in with a gun and says, stick them up, what do you do? It's surrender. Surrender. That's why I raise my hands. Lord, I surrender. I'm a moron. I'm an idiot. I need more of you, and I surrender to your will and to your plan. So sometimes you've got to do something. Kind of manifest, like, if you're worshiping in some a physical posture to reflect an internal attitude. This is a free place. If you want to raise your hands, great. If you feel like you need to leave your seat, take of the elements, and kneel at the altar, no one's going to think you're weird. Be free in your worship. That if there needs to be, you, you need to bow or get on your face. That's okay. In heaven we will. And this is practice for there, so why not? So there's a posture, right? Secondly, there's a pronouncement. John tells us that from this reverent position, the elders proceed to worship him who lives forever. The idea behind the word worship is that they credited to God the worth and worthiness that he deserved. Once more, they do this verbally. Did you notice? John records their declaration. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now, I don't want to get too nitpicky on this particular point, but there is something important to your worship of God manifesting in an audible expression emanating from your heart 
through your mouth. You see, sometimes it's not just enough to feel a certain way if you're never willing to articulate that feeling out loud. Like, like you may love your girl and be committed to her, determined to be faithful, but in order to get married, we actually require you do something. You can feel a way, but we want you to verbally articulate it through a vow, right? It's not enough just to feel it. There are times you've got to verbally express it. Well, Pastor Zach, I don't really like singing during worship because singing's really not my thing, and I can't carry a tune. First and foremost, if that's you, who cares what people think of your singing voice? Like if you are not singing in worship out of, out of a concern of what the person next to you might think of you, you've got the wrong object set up for your worship. Because it doesn't matter what the, you're not singing to them. The only opinion of your singing voice that matters at all is God. Right? And in Psalms 100, we're given the only prerequisite. God says, make a joyful noise. It doesn't have to be a good one. Or in key or in tune. It just has to be manifesting, welling up from a place of joy. The joy of the Lord. <laughs> let me say something controversial. I know that might sound odd. I never do that. But let me just preface it. <laughs> Here it goes. I have found that it's much easier to tell when someone is singing to please God and not impress men when they're absolutely terrible at singing. They sing. They sing loudly. And they don't care what anyone around them thinks about it. Like you know, when a person can't sing, and they do it anyway, that they're really worshiping, and they don't care what other people think. Like we used to have a young lady sit real close to the front of the stage. And I mean, she would close her eyes, raise her hands, and I mean, sing to the Lord with all of her heart. She's not a young lady anymore. She still does this. But here's how I knew her worship was real. Her singing was so bad that unlike the, unlike the person belting out the third part harmony in the back of the pew showing off their pipes, only God could have possibly enjoyed what this lady was singing. So don't be afraid. If you can't sing, sing loudly. And we know you're not impressing anybody but God. One of the, <laughs> one of the criticisms of modern worship that I find, uh, by the way, we literally had to go to in-ear monitors, the vocalists, because it was that it was that bad, and it was that loud. It was beautiful to God. One of the criticisms <laughs> of modern worship, for that, per for that person, they know who they are, I love you with all my heart, and you know that. One of the criticisms of modern worship that I find actually to be credible is sometimes how me-centric our songs tend to be at the expense of being Christ-focused. Like, for example, look at this song. I, I can't miss the opportunity to make this point, but it's clear that as they worship, their worship, it's focused on what? 
exalting God and God alone. They say, look at it, you are worthy. You created for your will, or as we talked about, your pleasure. All that was created exists for you. For, for you, for you. I should add that when we get to the song at the end of chapter 5, it follows the same pattern. It's not about me, it's about you. You know, it's true, you can always tell the purpose of one's worship by the object of their worship. And it's sad, but since many approach worship for the spiritual experience they hope to receive, songwriters tend to be more than willing to oblige the compulsion by authoring songs more focused on the worshiper than on Jesus. I've said this, but I'll say it again, that any time I hear someone say, Pastor, I just, I just wasn't feeling worship today. I like to respond, that's okay, because we weren't worshiping you. <laughs> Finally, don't miss, again, our third P, there's a posture, pronouncement, a third P, there's a reciprocation. In light of who God was and all that God had done for them, you know, it wasn't enough, was it? For them to just fall on their faces and make pronouncements. As glorious as they were. John also says, look at it, that they cast their crowns before the throne. You see, the attitude of their hearts and the words of their mouths demanded action. Action of their hands. You know, in Roman times, whenever the emperor would visit one of the many provinces throughout the empire, it was customary, it was a custom, that the local ruler would remove his crown and cast it at Caesar's feet. Like actions took the place of words to demonstrate honor and respect and submission. And in turn, Caesar would pick up the crown, he wouldn't keep it, he would give it back, and in doing so would acknowledge that he had accepted the gesture. That's what's happening here. Now, I've heard Christians ask what they could possibly give back to the God who gave everything for them? The answer is actually quite simple. You give him everything. <laughs> That's what you give back. All of it. This is why the worship necessitates the correct posture of one's heart and it manifests through the pronouncements of one's lips. Real worship always fosters in the life of that person a reciprocal action. And heaven... We will cast our crowns before the throne of God. But you know, today in our worship, it might motivate us to do other things. To maybe be, be more generous with our, with our money. Or our time to maybe volunteer. Again, we can worship God. We can exalt God. We can pour out our hearts before the Lord. But then what happens next? Is there a reciprocation? Worship is not just singing songs. It's a way of living. In light of all that God has done and all that who, who God is. And sometimes for us, yes, we will cast our crowns, but maybe it's taking care of a neighbor in need. Do you know that's an act of worship? Because your life is bringing worth to God. Let's dive back into the scene. Revelation 5, verse 1. And I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, Sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who was worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much, John says, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll 
or to look at it. Now that, that phrase, to look at it, it's a little misleading. What it means in the Greek is literally kind of to open and read it. Again, John's looking at it. As the heavenly scene unfolds, we can only presume that as these elders continue to worship, John's focus shifts from the one who sat on the throne now to the scroll, interesting, that he sees in his right hand. Now regarding this particular manuscript, John notes that it was a scroll written on the inside and on the back that had been sealed with seven seals. Furthermore, upon this strong angel's pronouncement, inviting anyone to come and to open the scroll by loosing the seals, John says that no man had the ability or the legal standing to do so. And he's overwhelmed by this reality, so much so that in heaven, John begins to openly and unashamedly weep. He begins to cry. Now, with the time we have left, I'm going to point out a few things that we can say for sure about this scroll, which will set the scene for what comes next. The whole purpose of why John's in the throne itself. But you need to know what the scroll is. First, while it was typically uncommon to write on both sides of a scroll, that that wasn't a normal thing. There was one exception to that rule. So generally a scroll was only written on the inside. But there was one exception. See, when the contents of an important document, again, concealed from view on the inside of the scroll, when those contents were reserved for only a particular person that needed to fit a certain set of criteria, on the outside of the scroll, you would find listed the qualifications of who was worthy to actually open the scroll itself. So when John sees that this scroll was written on the inside and on the back, we understand that the contents of this scroll were reserved for someone specific. Which again makes complete sense, right? Because John observes how everyone in heaven, on earth, under the earth, everyone somehow knew, right, that they weren't worthy to loose the seals and to open the important document. They could see the qualifications. Secondly, Because this scroll, we're told, was found in the right hand of Almighty God and had been sealed with seven seals. We also know that the specific directives that were contained within this manuscript had been reserved by God to be opened at a specific time and place. God has the scroll in his right hand. So he has set the qualifications. He's holding it for the right time and the right moment. You see, the very fact that this scroll has been kept under seal, it tells us something important. It tells us that the things this document intended to initiate or or to set into motion, God had determined to bind or to hold back until a moment when the right person was presented and the right time was reached so that the seals could be loosed And this legal binding document set free and acted. Thirdly, while John doesn't tell us what the contents of the scroll happened to be, I'm actually convinced he he already knows. And in his description, his audience in the first century would have known as well. There's a little disconnect for us. For example, when John realizes that no man was found worthy 
right, to open the scroll to loose its seals, he's so overwhelmed by the implications of this reality, he weeps uncontrollably. He wouldn't do that if he didn't know what the scroll contained, why it was important, why this was such a thing. So he knows, which is why he's emotionally stirred and gripped, overwhelmed. So the question begs, right, what's contained in the scroll? Because again, this very moment, right now, in the throne of heaven, God sits on a throne, and in his right hand is what? This scroll, right now. So it's important. What is it? There are scholars, and I will add, to be fair, a vast number of them, who contend that this scroll was the title deed to planet Earth. And that in loosing the seals, Jesus was reclaiming what was rightfully his. Biblically, they'll point out that in Jeremiah 32, we actually have an example of such a deed being sealed up until the appropriate time some land needed to be reclaimed. So there is some precedent for this. It sounds novel, especially with what happens next. My problem, though, with this position (laughs) is that it doesn't make any sense. Sounds great. You really think about it? Fall short. Like, sure, we we know that the kingdoms and cultures and structures of this earth are under the dominion of Satan. We know that. And yet, you should ask yourself, like, when exactly did God lose the title deed to the world itself? I, I don't remember that poker game in heaven where he lost it or misplaced it. Like, once more, like, he actually has it. He hasn't lost it. It's in his hand. Like to this point in Psalms 24, verse 1, David affirms the following. He says, quote, The earth is the Lord's, and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. So I don't think God lost the title, that this is a title deed. Regarding the contents of the scroll, I actually think the biggest clue that John's audience would have already been familiar with, but again, culturally, we wouldn't have picked up on, the big clue is found in the fact that, yes, this scroll was sealed, right? But it was sealed specifically, bound, with seven seals. And when the contents of a scroll were to be kept reserved for either a particular person or situation, again, it was normal that a string be tied around the scroll, wax then dripped onto the knot, and the sender's signet pressed, the ring pressed into the wax, affirming that the contents were reserved for a particular individual, not to be opened. And logically, upon the arrival of the the scroll to the intended person, an unbroken seal, right? It guaranteed to the reader that the contents had remained private, undisturbed, kind of for their eyes only. And yet, while one seal would have worked if that had been its purpose, The existence of seven seals tells us that this scroll was of such importance that it needed to be sealed using seven individual signets, indicating that seven, again completion, seven eyewitnesses had been necessary to ratify both the contents of the scroll as well as the qualifications of who could open it. And again, in Roman times, if you saw a document with seven seals, this unique practice was always reserved, and we have evidence of this all over the place, for one thing, a final will and testament. You know, in case you're unaware, 
from the very beginning of time, the sovereign God has always had a plan for the trajectory of human affairs. Like God has a will. There is an end. His will is inescapable. His will is totally certain. God's will will happen. And it'll play out exactly as he's determined. It's true that we can, from our vantage point, see how so much of God's plan for humanity has already been executed in Jesus and what Jesus came to do in his mission. But we also know, right, that there is a final act to God's will yet to be initiated. That there is a portion of biblical prophecy dealing with Israel, God's judgment of the world, the establishing of Jesus' kingdom on earth, that has yet to come to fruition. We call these things the end times. Personally, I find it fascinating that at the end of his life, the prophet Daniel, who saw and wrote about many of these future developments that we then find recorded in the book of Revelation, he was instructed at the very end of his life, Daniel 12, verse 4, to what? To, quote, shut up and seal the book until the time of the end. You see, I believe that John understands that within this scroll, sealed up, and in the right hand of the, of the Father, was God's final act for this earth. Up until this future moment in time that John now finds himself witnessing and recording for us, God has kept these final events from taking place on earth, binding them up and sealing them in this scroll. Right now, they're in the hand of the Father, still under seal. And yet John, he's taken into the the Spirit, into this future scene. He's in the throne room of heaven to, to witness this moment when God's final act is ready to be initiated. The only thing needed, right, was someone worthy enough to come and set it all into motion. Understandably, because no one was found initially worthy, and therefore the consummation of God's will remained on pause, John is gripped with emotions. I mean, without the contents of this scroll being enacted, John knows, it's why he weeps, that there could be no final resolution to world affairs. You see, John knows that without the seals being loosed, without the contents of this scroll being executed on earth, things on earth would continue as they were, and that was a bummer. John knew nothing would change. The world would remain hopeless, trapped forever in this ongoing cycle of pain and despair and wickedness. From John's perspective, it was evident that there was no mortal man who could initiate the fullness of God's remaining plan for this earth. No one was worthy. He weeps, (laughs) or so he thought. We will see next Sunday that there was one worthy. In closing, there's a question that needs to be answered. In light of the fact that God's future will for this planet is presently sealed up for a future moment in time. Think about it. If right now, God is on his throne in heaven and in his hand is this this scroll sealed with seven seals. It is God's plan for the rest of humanity to bring this all to an end. What is he waiting for? Like you look around at the world and it's like, God, Can we get on with it? Like, could you wrap this up? Could you deal with it? You know, to be honest, if the rapture of the church does not occur before the seals are loosed, answering that question for me proves very difficult. 
In fact, I'd be at a total loss for explaining why he's waiting. However, if in this final act, right, of God's plan for the world, if it ends up being initiated, again, within the chronology of the first four chapters, following Jesus' removal of his church from this earth, not only can I answer the question, but the implications are profound. You see, the reason, my friend, that God is keeping the remaining components of his will for this wicked world under seal is that he is graciously giving humanity a little more time to accept his son Jesus. And in doing so, escape the judgments that will be executed when the seals of this document are finally loosed. Think about it. God has his plan on hold for one reason. Maybe to give you the opportunity to accept his son Jesus and not have to live through it. What grace for God to put his plan on hold for you. And if that's you, don't wait any longer. So Father, we thank you for your word and what it says to us.